Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply building a portfolio with fidelity basket portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich it's as simple as picking your stocks and etfs sort of like your meats and other topics and managing it as one big juicy investment mm, now that's pretty good learn more at fidelity.com baskets Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Oh, hey, it's still that throwback picture from when you wore baggy jeans and shell necklaces. Allie Ward back with part two of a pop cultural and psychological episode. Y'all loved the start of last week. So we're going to finish it off with more of your great questions. Shall we? We shall. Okay, so if you have not listened to last week, you want to hop over to part one first. You'll hear the definition of anthropology from an actual living, breathing researcher whose Twitter bio reads, Phanthropologist, entertainment futurist, YouTube enthusiast, and defender of teen girl taste. So in part one, we covered sports and religion and K-pop goblins for good and the practice of Disney bounding, which I completely failed to ever define. It's subtly dressing like Disney characters in the theme parks in a way that only other Disney fanatics might catch. That's Disney bounding. Um, We talked about fan fiction and Frasier and how complex and kind of evil algorithms tell us what to like. We talk about free-range children, what to do if your favorite author turns out to be problematic and more. So that is part one. In this episode, we're going to hear about shipping, which is short for relationshiping, I suppose, or dreaming up unions that exist only in your horny daydreams, and fans versus stands, stands being kind of the creepy variety, and the line between cults and fandoms, and the all-important question of, if you want to build an empire and fandom over which you preside, how do you become internet famous? Do you want to be internet famous? All that and more. Um, a quick thanks first to all the listeners of Ologies. I could not do these interviews or make the show without the wonderfully weird and insightful questions from patrons. You can give a dollar or more a month to support the show at patreon.com ologies, as well as all the folks who just spread the word and the links and leave reviews. I creep on you, and I read every single one. And this week, thank you to Trisha S. and also Bronze Kraken, a.k.a. PD, who wrote, Dearest Father, I hope this letter finds you well. I have verily enjoyed your audio recordings. I listen to each new one with gusto and look forward to the next. Your internet child, PD. See? Proof. So leave one. Okay, everyone else who left one, I read it for sure, and your weird internet uncle dad hearts you very much and is earnestly so happy you're here. Okay, let's shove off into part two of Phanthropology with behavioral researcher and legit professional on her business card, unironically, Phanthropologist Meredith Levine. to make us go through Patreon questions because there are questions I want to ask you that patrons asked. And so I'm going to ask it 
their questions through my mouth. Is that cool? Great. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> um, okay. This one was at the top of my tongue. And it was asked by patrons Anna Thompson, Elma Call, Matt Cicado, Island Helly, Bonnie, Tamara Mann, Carrie, Caitlin Powell, Anya, Levi Burke, Hope, Lexi Reitz, Rachel Weiss, Lee Catherine Ayerhart, and John McClain all kind of wanted to know about obsessive fandom. Bonnie asked, what's the line between being a healthy fan of something and obsession? And Tamara wants to know, when does fandom cross the line to inappropriate and healthy? And then also a stan. When does a fan become a stan? Good question. So let's start with obsessive. Okay. Fandom has historically been pathologized okay. in a negative way. Yeah. And fans generally aren't that. Oh. Um, they are generally not malicious and when does it become unhealthy? Mm -hmm. It becomes unhealthy when you neglect all of the things in your life that actually lead to a healthy life, like eating and sleeping and <laughs> like going to work and or school. But like, who's to say what a good use of time is, especially in an age where one can be a professional fan, if like that's the thing you want to do. When does it become unhealthy? When your life and relationships suffer as a result. Right. Plenty of people have found their life partners and, like, gotten married and stuff through fandom. And that's a thing that happens now. Mm -hmm. And by fandom, I mean, like, pop culture fandom. Fandom with, like, a capital F. So that's not necessarily unhealthy. What is unhealthy is when you have the rogue person. And this happens a lot in, like, influencer culture and those kinds of fandoms. Because this particular type of object of fandom is themselves yeah. for a living. Where uh, I'm friends with a bunch of creators as a offshoot of my life. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes they get the question of like, what's the weirdest thing a fan has ever done? Yeah. Or what's like the scariest or creepiest or whatever. And that is when it gets to be scary and creepy and bad. Is in those in-person interactions for the most part of like... Screaming at someone in Target. Or like going and waiting outside of their house. Anything that is a breach of personal privacy for the object of fandom is when it gets to be bad because then it's like actively dehumanizing to mm -hmm. those people who are objects of fandom. But wouldn't some people argue that they have taken themselves out of being a human and been striving for something like superhuman where they are getting more than a normal human's share of attention or wealth or privilege. So, I mean, and I'm only, I'm saying this as someone who also knows a lot of creators and is a creator. Is there anything where there's been a consensus that you have surrendered your privacy by selling it? No. Every, in my opinion, everyone is entitled to their privacy in as much of it as they want. Cool. That being said, it's also important for objects of fandom to understand that and be a little bit more careful with their personal information in the event that you are an object of fandom or want to be an object of fandom step one is cultivate an audience but in that process people with kids have to make the decision how much of their kids lives are part of their brands and that's a personal decision especially if their kids are too young to like consent to that and there are choices that everyone has to make about like how much of their personal lives they want to show and celebrities deal with this also it's a little little bit less of an issue when you're a non-human entity with mm -hmm. fans 
I'm hoping she means non-human entity, like Gritty, the floopy, grumpy, flaming orange figurehead of the Philadelphia Flyers, who has been described by newspapers as, quote, an acid trip of a mascot and a ghastly, empty-eyed Muppet. So neither human nor beast, Gritty was born in 2018 out of the design prompt, something you'd high-five but not hug. And sure, I did go down a rabbit hole looking at pictures of Gritty tattoos, such as one bearing the words, Chaos reigns. Chaos reigns. But even still, like, showing up to a place of home or work is when it gets to be obsessive and bad. Right. Which is not the same thing as a toxic fandom. Yeah. Can we talk about toxic fandoms? Because um, patrons Mike Monikowski, Samantha Ryan, Jesse Dragon, Anna Thompson, Justin McCormick, and Colleeny B, also Will Johnston, wanted to know... Will Johnson asks, what, in your opinion, is the most toxic fandom? And also, what's the best fandom and why is it Terry Pratchett's Disco World? Or Discworld. I thought I said Disco World. And I was like, that sounds tight. But I guess Discworld, maybe that's Frisbee. I don't know. I earnestly thought that Discworld was similar to Terry Bradshaw's NFL video game, but with Ultimate Frisbee. And then I realized that it's actually John Madden's NFL game. Anyway, Discworld is a series of novels set in a flat world, perched on the back of four giant elephants perched on a giant turtle. It was written not by NFL coach Terry Bradshaw, but by literary figure Sir Terry Pratchett. My point is that Discworld fandom has nothing to do with sports or disco pantsuits. Uh, I would totally go to Disco World, by the way. <laughs> Me uh, too, dude. <laughs> I, I would love it there. Um, so. What is the most toxic fandom? Yeah. Like, what is toxic fandom? Like, when does it become <sighs> shitty? Because I'm trying to think of, like, all I can think about are, like, people who are out in 30-degree weather with no shirt on and their body painted sports colors. And I'm sure that that is, like, not even toxic compared to what is out there. That's just uncomfortable fandoms. So, like, generally when people refer to toxic fandoms, they refer to, like, intra-fandom fighting with ad hominem attacks and actively like shutting other people down and yucking their yums and generally being like know-it-alls, wet blankets, gatekeepers, <laughs> and like shunning and shaming mm -hmm. people who like the same things. So when, sh when those kinds of tools get used within a fandom or like when actions are taken against marginalized identities or those are not respected... Um, oftentimes that is another thing that's referenced as a toxic fandom. I'm all for sports fans who go shirtless in the middle of winter yeah. <laughs> to paint their bodies like you do you, your body, whatever. I'm not going to tell you to put on a sweater, but kink shame someone for their fan fiction, which also came up a lot. And that's kind of bad. Or like telling someone that they don't belong or mm. that they're not fan enough. Everyone starts as a beginner. Mm -hmm. And just because someone doesn't have the same fandom origin story as someone else doesn't necessarily make them less of a fan or less of a worthy fan. So do other fans call newbies posers? That's a little toxic. Now, confession, I have actually never seen Rocky Horror Picture Show live because I heard that they write a V for virgin on your forehead if you've never been, like with lipstick. And I, I think that's good natured and not toxic. But I was so afraid of getting a constellation of pimples in a V on my forehead, on my bad teen skin. So I chickened out at every opportunity to attend a midnight fishnetted screening. But yes, fandoms in which people genuinely, not good-naturedly harass each other, those are the bad ones. 
Um, sometimes it happens also when there are ship wars that happen, <laughs> and like there are two dominant ships that come to the forefront of the fandom, and they actively like don't believe and are against each other. Which is its whole shipping culture is its whole other. It's part of fandom with a capital F, but it's its whole other thing. And if you want to know a lot more about fan fiction and shipping culture and that kind of fandom, fandom with a capital F, I highly recommend the Fansplaining podcast with yeah. Flourish Clink and Elizabeth Minkle. Great podcast if you're interested in capital F fandom. Well, you know, dovetailing off of that, listeners, Diane Bao, Taryn Fernatz, Kelly Seaman, and Jamie Kishimoto. Uh, Jamie had a great question and asked, have you done any studies on the phenomenon of queer baiting and how it creates diehard fandoms of shippers but never delivers a happy queer ending? I would say never say never. The media landscape is shifting and we have an example of that recently. But my guess is there's a specific IP behind this and my hunch is that it might be Teen Wolf. Okay, so I looked this up, and the MTV series Teen Wolf debuted in 2011, and I'm going to quote an article from The Advocate to sum up the beef with the beefy but ultimately empty romance arcs. So The Advocate said, The continued teases that a character might be bisexual with no payoff, the same-sex romances that end as quickly as they begin, the disappearance of gay characters without explanation, and the absence of any well-developed LGBT character four seasons into a show that appeared to bank heavily on its queer appeal early on have left vocal fans howling, end quote. And though its final season was in 2017, many moons ago, history remembers Teen Wolf as kind of a hairy situation. Ooh. Um, and I personally think that queer baiting is exploitative, as are a lot of the tropes that get used, like barrier gaze and fridging and that sort of thing that shows historically have used. And I think that as queer voices become more prominent in writers' rooms and in in the production process, I think that will happen less and less, especially since fans also can take collective action and do grassroots like awareness of what these issues are and why it's harmful. Having very coded behavior is also very typically Hollywood and stems from like a very long history of what was acceptable on in film and television by those standards and like Hayes Code stuff. What it means to get like a rating for PG-13 versus R. Hayes Codes, side note, I looked it up, were essentially written in the late 1920s by a Jesuit priest and a church elder as a sort of code of standards for the motion picture industry. And it set precedents for bidding all kinds of fun stuff, such as nudity, suggestive dancing, uh, discussions of sexual perversity, any ridicule of religion, any interracial relationships, lustful kissing, and any scenes of passion. Obviously, this was not friendly to any queer depictions or werewolf makeouts, to say the least. There's a lot of institutionalized things to unpack around queer baiting because to attribute it to a writer's room isn't entirely the whole story and to attribute to a marketing team isn't entirely the whole story. Uh, in my opinion, it's unfortunate, but also tends to draw out people who are like-minded and want to go into that level of imagining. Mm. I don't love it, but also the effects of it have done community building things. So a lot of the times why queer ships exist um, is because there aren't uh, as many well-rounded 
characters to imagine and reimagine and reshape that are women and non-binary and on the other gender spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, Hollywood is still incredibly male-dominated. Yeah. When it comes to playing around with characters, often the best ones are guys. Mm. That's interesting. That's such a good point. So because movies and TV and comic books seem to be well-stocked on man-people in general, those lead characters are fleshed out with more complexity, and so they get shipped more often in fan fantasies. Because who wants to ship a boring character? It's like trying to make a sexy sandwich with one soggy bread slice. No, thank you. Give me two nutty, rich, tangy slices. I don't care what gender they are. Now, on the topic of that. And kind of off of that, uh, listener Sylvia Scharf had a question. They wrote, people talk about fangirling or fanboying over a person. What is the gender neutral term for this behavior? It isn't fanning. Signed, a gender person who definitely does this thing, but is neither a girl nor a boy. So, um, I, I, if I had to remove gender from it, I would say fanning out as a phrase. Okay. I'm fanning out. But fangirling and fanboying often, like, have implied different sets of behaviors. Mm, okay. Regardless of gender, but having to do with typically masculine and typically feminine traits based on their portrayals in the media. Right. So, like, when I hear fangirling, I hear a sound. Yes. Oh, of course. Of course. And I'm sure everyone hears the sound of, like, this high <laughs> pit. It, it, it's a squee, S-Q-U-E-E, and it's a sound. And um, I hear, like, Beatlemania and crying and fainting, and a lot of it is associated with proximity to object of fandom yes yes <laughs> um versus like being a fanboy i ascribe to regardless of gender slightly more pedantic behavior <laughs> and the behavior of like nerd jocking yeah or true fanning which is quizzing people and having all the information and there's a very outdated model about uh affirmational and transformational fandom that was like an academic paper from like i think maybe the late 90s possibly the early 2000s um about ways that fandom capital f express themselves and some is in transformation and some is in completionism of like are you reimagining and playing with the work the work is a springboard for one's own imagination or is it more encyclopedic and religious where like it's about knowing everything And like being an expert in the thing. So transformational fandom is like, hey, thanks for making this world, these characters. As fans, it's now ours to run with and make more elaborate and weirder if we want to. But affirmational fandom is like, this is what the creator intended. And we may only observe and fawn over and memorize this particular world and characters. Also, if you like video games, name all the video games. And... So these conflicting models of, like, what people think of as fans can often inhibit the experience of being one. Because the, one of the other questions that gets asked a lot is, like, do you have to be part of a community to be a fan? And the answer is no. You can be a fan all on your own and, like, do whatever it is that you do and not interact with a soul around it and still be a good fan because being a fan is something that one imagines themselves to be, not like a set of behaviors. Mm. And But we would call that in general fanning out. Fanning out. I like I fanning out. If there's, if there's a gender neutral term for having an 
overwhelming moment of excitement as a result of something having to do with the object of fandom mm-hmm. that makes oneself sensorily overloaded or sensorily like <laughs> frozen. Uh-huh. Um, I would call it fanning out. I love it. I love it. And on the topic of forging ahead with um, neologisms, which I, is a word that I can never say. Neologism? Neologism? New words? I've only read it. Neologism. Um, Anna Thompson and Forrest Dots had questions. Do people typically connect more with podcasts than other types of media? Because listening is more intimate. Oh, thank you for your podcast voice. I love this <laughs> ASMR moment. There are a lot of things that have to do with connecting with podcast hosts. Um, part of it has to do with being in someone's ears and how intimate actually talking is, especially in the age of like visuals and texting. Mm-hmm. Part of it has to do with how much time podcasters spend in the ears of their fans. It's somewhere between 20 minutes and an hour or two a week, depending on what kind of podcast you're listening to. And it's like every week. Mm -hmm. So this is a friend. This is a familiar voice. It's the kind of experience you put on to be a little less alone, Mm -hmm. whilst usually whilst doing something else, uh, like driving or dishes or laundry or going on a walk. The dedicated podcast listening, high fidelity style of this is all I'm doing. I'm sitting and I'm listening to my voice or whatever a little less prevalent behaviorally but there is a lot of familiarity assuming that the library can sustain that most podcasts don't make it over um over 10 episodes do really yeah a lot a lot fail in the first 90 days and we'll have a season but to be able to sustain and develop an audience in podcast form often requires a lot of dedication to the, the format and ability to do so. And there are a lot of people who dabble. As the podcast scene gets more robust, there are more podcasts that can't go on indefinitely. Mm-hmm. But yes, like there is a certain level of intimacy that is similar to vloggers um, because of the amount of time that this person as themselves spends with the audience. It's a very audience-inclusive format and so yes there is a great reason as to why podcast hosts have fandom in a way that feels a little bit more friendly than jared padalecki <laughs> which is beautiful and a lot easier under the like independent creator model than it is to do when you are a major studio with like a massive legal team and like oh. all sorts of issues like with including any idea that didn't come out of the writer's room. Like, (laughs) there are a lot of infrastructural reasons why big studios can't do what podcasters do. I know. I I never thought that I would would love this medium as much as I do. It's just been so rewarding, I think, because of that connection to listeners. And I have said before, and even more so now that we're in an era of not in-person weddings, but if two ologites met through the show and get married... I am a universal life church minister. I will be happy to Zoom marry you. Marriage is what brings us together today. (laughs) 
feel like it is my duty. <laughs> you heard it here, Ollie You heard it here. Do you want Dad Ward to marry you too? All you have to do is meet somebody and then fall in love and then decide to get married. There is um, an Ology's Facebook singles group. I think it's called Flirtyologites or Flirtology, one of those, but I'll, I'll put it in aside. Please see the Facebook group Flirtology Singles, quote, a place for ologites and other nerds, geeks, dweebs, wonks, and boffins to meet, mingle, flirt, chat, and canoodle. There's 908 hot dorks waiting for you. So maybe, maybe this is the universe, aka me, telling you to maybe join. Text a crush about the bangs you just cut. We're all gonna die anyway. Just take a chance. Also, quick ad break right now. A double donation was made to the Project for Awesome. Thanks to sponsors of the show and links to sponsors and to that charity are in the show notes. Ologies with Ali Ward is sponsored by Squarespace, and Squarespace has been part of my daily life for the last seven and a half years. Ologies might not exist without Squarespace. I had to make a website for this, and I was so intimidated. It took me over a year, and then one night I was like, you know what? I've heard about Squarespace. I'm going to try it, and now look at us. If you don't think you need a website, guess what? You probably do, especially if you're an academic. Have some place where all your papers are. People can contact you. Anyway, they have so many tools for entrepreneurs. They have Fluid Engine, which is this kind of next generation website design system. It's from Squarespace. It's drag and drop technology. You can use it on desktop or mobile. They also have an asset library so you can manage all of your files from this central hub and then you can use them across the whole platform. They have professional website templates. They have designs for every category, every use case, no matter what you need a website for. Get a website, start your business. Look, it worked for me. Ding. So head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And then when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash ologies to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. You can do it. You can do it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So is my brain. Here's a thought experiment. Think of all the time that you spend just scrolling on things or not doing the things you want to do. I know, time is the most valuable thing that you have. Boy, let me tell you, I had to learn this over time. You know what helped? Therapy. Therapy can help you figure out what matters most to you and how to prioritize it so that you like your life more. And where I learned that was better help. Because yes, I have been a client. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, I know how hard it is to get started. BetterHelp makes it very easy. It's entirely online. It's convenient. It's flexible. You take a quick questionnaire. They match you with a therapist. Instead of just Googling and trying to find someone with an opening, BetterHelp makes it very accessible. And I like that. It's also more affordable than traditional therapy. And you can chat. You can text. You can do video calls. You can do phone calls. For some reason, you are not vibing with your therapist. You can switch at any time. No extra cost. No drama. So let me tell you. Time is precious. Figure out where you want to spend yours. And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com ologies today to get 10% off your first month. So that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies. It's about time. Okay, here's how I like my clothes. I like them classic. I like them well-made. I like them comfortable. And I like them ethical, which is why I flipped when I first heard about Quince. So Quince partners directly with these top factories. So they cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to, obviously, you. They have these 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters that start at 50 bucks. They have organic cotton sweaters. They have washable silk tops. They even have 14 karat jewelry in case you are looking for a present 
maybe for yourself. So Quince items are priced like 50 to 80% less than similar brands. But Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And I like that their styles are well-made, well-cut, but also classic. I did not own a cashmere sweater before Quince. That was the kind of thing that I would splurge for for other people, but not myself. But I was like, you know what, Quince? I think I shall. So indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash ologies. You look amazing. How you doing on that D, that vitamin D? Could be better. I feel you. Some of us are coming out of a winter. I don't know how much outside time you get. I don't know how your vitamin D is dietarily, but I know a lot of people, including myself, especially women over 18, 97% of us not getting enough vitamin D from our diet. Rituals like, how about I help you? They're a clinically backed multivitamin. So skeptics, here's a multivitamin that's like, yeah, we use science to formulate this. I think you're going to like it. Ritual multivitamins are vegan. They're gluten and major allergen free. I also like that Ritual is a female founded B Corp. So they're doing good for the health of people and the planet. Ritual multivitamins are also gentle on an empty stomach. I like that when I open mine, they have kind of a minty essence. I've got Ritual vitamins in my belly right now, to be honest. I take them every day. They have kind of a lava lamp look with oil and beads inside. I also have their melatonin caps at night when I need to go bye-bye, Zs. So no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. And get 20% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash ologies. So start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. So that's ritual.com slash ologies for 20% off. Okay, I think we were talking about, yes, flirtology singles. So if you're single and you like learning things about slug dicks. Let me hook you up with someone. A lot of people asked about the positives and benefits of certain fandoms. Bailey Sperling, letters from Eleanor Rigby, which is a great name, Carrie Simo, Kathleen Sachs, Natalie Rhodes, and Kim Boniker all kind of asked, like, what's the most moving thing you've ever seen a group of fans do for someone else? Or what's been the most wholesome view of the world? What kinds of experiences have, have really touched you? What's having a moment this year which is a really beautiful thing to watch, is fans rallying together to be pro-social with causes and to actively help shape the world. Like There is this budding form of activism called fan activism. And um, one of my favorite instances is the Project for Awesome, which has been going on for like over 10 years now, which is a nerdfighter John and Hank thing, but extends to their larger network of creators uh, that actually started as like an algorithmic hack to get on the front page of YouTube <sighs> back when that was a thing and is now a major fundraising for charity experience. The fandoms do all sorts of beautiful things. There's a great book called Will the Vampire People Please Leave the Lobby about fans funding other Buffy fans in like the 90s to like get them plane tickets and get them to like fan meetups. I've seen K-pop fans doing, honestly doing some great work this season. There are a lot of Twitch streamers and gamers who do a lot of fundraising for charity. St. Jude is a recipient for a lot of those. There's a lot of beautiful stuff that happens when you can get a community together and move them in a positive direction. Like, what I'm really enjoying right now is the community of people on TikTok who are building the Ratatouille musical. <laughs> is it cast with real rats? Please say yes. No. 
No, but it's this beautiful work of like collaborative creativity. So this was recorded in December, side note, out of order with the rats episode, which you may reference if you would like to know all about rodents and ratatouille TikTok musicals. And also hear a career rodentologist talk about the zaniest things he's seen a rat abscond with. Also, I do break down into tears about rats giving each other presents, like a chewed on biscuit or a dead moth. That's normal. Everything's fine. Are there any thoughts that you have about fandom being cultish um, or religious? A ton of listeners who I will say their names in a side. Your names, my mouth. Let's do it. Tony Jane, Kat Lindsay, Regan L. Hereford, Hillary Larson, Ashley Scrivener, Sharika Alahi, Kathleen Sachs, and Amber Lee Noel. Or are those just so different in severity and harm and emotional impact that they're not even comparable? Oh, I mean, if you are cutting off all of your social ties and devoting all of your financial capital to a fandom, it's probably a cult. Okay. Um, but. <laughs> Outside of those contexts, communities develop language and rituals all the time. And if your ritual is, you know, buy yourself a dozen roses and have your girlfriends over once a week to watch The Bachelorette. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be a cliche, but I'm not here to make friends. Ritual, not cult. Okay. <laughs> um, which, admirable ritual. Buy yourself a dozen roses every week. Why that not? is a great treat. Why not? <laughs> Meredith Ever, the anthropologist, says that from a community evolutionary perspective, we as big bald apes are constantly trying to find who is chill and who is sus. And when fandoms get too large, like even over 200 people in a group, it's scary for us to trust each other. So people get bitchy. Folks begin to bicker, sub-fandoms schism off based on who they ship or maybe what seasons or franchises they like more. Are they cults? Mostly not. Um, <laughs> again, if you or someone you know is cutting off everybody who doesn't belong and also devoting all of their financial resources to this outside organization, probably a cult. <laughs> Most fandoms are not. In fact, I can't really think of a fandom that is, aside from occasional like actual cults of personality, in which case they're small but hold a lot of weight, mm -hmm. or religions like Scientology, which are large and hold a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. I mean, do religions offspring off of like off of objects of fandom and like works of science fiction? Scientology is an example of that happening. So it could happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it's not outside the realm of possibility. Scientology episode, anyone? JK, I'm too scared. And you know, those are based on science fiction books, Scientology in particular. And that um, one last Patreon question I have to ask are so many. Hannah, Miss Kitty, Monica, first time question asker, Irina DeZazo, Caitlin Powell, Monica, Aviva Elizabeth, Paulina Krasinka, Samantha Ryan, Jolanta Banal, Lauren Mascabroda, Deborah Bowden, and Samantha Steelman all had questions about fan fiction. And they wanted to know, Monica asked, what is the academic discussion surrounding fan fiction writing? Are they taken seriously in academic context? And Arena is a first time question asker and wants to know just what your thoughts are. When does it cross the line from creative expression to privacy invasion? I have never had fan fiction written about me, so I <laughs> don't have a lot of experience about privacy invasion, but a lot of it is imaginings uh, rather than spying on someone mm -hmm. <laughs> uh academia takes fan fiction very seriously does it really 
It's a very interesting subject of research <gasps> for a lot of people. It blends into fan labor discussions. It blends into representation discussions. There are a lot of people who have done math and like quantitative analyses of the fan fiction landscapes. Um, it blends into like legal challenges. Like it's a really interesting space for fan studies. And it's a really interesting place to be, which is one of the reasons I think it's so heavily associated with the idea of fandom. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a delight. <laughs> I used to read a lot of it. Um, I read less of it now, mostly because time and tastes change and the fandoms that I'm interested in reading about, like the kinds of fic I want, isn't necessarily the kinds of fic that's prolific because I want like story continuity fics. Like, right now I'm starting to hunt down fic for the magicians because that series ended and I really just want more of those characters and of that world and it left on a really great, like, new beginning ending rather than, like, everything that had to have been said was said ending. Um, so, like, there was a lot of negative space in that show for imagining and I really am, like, interested in that. But fic is also really heavily into like it crosses over heavily into shipping although not all fic is shipping by any means and not all shipping happens in fic by mm -hmm. any means <laughs> and erotica and sex positivity there are all sorts of genres that people may take some sort of issue with like real person fic or dubcon or noncon just a quick jargon rundown fanfic again is fan fiction shipping once again creating relationships and dubcon and noncon i had to look it up and it means portraying sexual elements of dubious consent or non-consent so of course fan fiction about real people and depictions of violence are areas people get understandably squicky about but one of the things about fan fiction and one of the interesting things about the internet is like when fan fiction was happening, there was almost no way that an object of fandom would read it. Writers' rooms can't because they can't risk mm. ideas from fic. Mm. They can't risk the idea of, like, idea theft. Yeah. So, like, writers for writers' rooms can't read fic for their own series. Or typically can't. I only know a few writers, but that's generally the operating procedure. Which isn't to say that authors don't write fic and, like, writers and writers don't write fic. They do. But, like, under pseudonyms and stuff like that because of the way that like intellectual property works mm -hmm. um and i think it's fascinating because you can see the most interesting characters are male it's very very white it's a microcosm of the internet more broadly where there are issues of representation and issues of expression and issues of labor or, like it's just a beautiful little microcosm of all of the other issues that as a society we're dealing with today mm-hmm in this of varying quality, nicheified experience for people who want that. So I'm very pro fan fiction, even <laughs> though I don't read a lot of it. So fan fiction is a way to create art that perhaps breaks the bounds of what a lot of typical mainstream studio entertainment looks like, where executives have to answer to shareholders and corporations rely on a few big tentpole movies to keep the whole studio standing. And fan fiction doesn't have those restrictions. Anything can happen in your own word processing doc or notebook. So creators are kind of like 
y'all dream up whatever you want, but your tweets are not going to influence what I want to write. My very, very good friend, Daylin Rodriguez, is a showrunner for the show Queen of the South, and she says her DMs get filled with people sending their opinions on storylines and relationships between characters. She doesn't even open them. She appreciates the enthusiasm, but doesn't engage because she has a whole show to run. Being good on Twitter is its own skill. I know. Not all creators of objects of fandom have any interest or ability to be objects of fandom themselves. Mm -hmm. And this is where, like, respecting the creative process, I think, happens is, like, one of the other things that happens a lot is a lot of fan entitlement of, like, there's a balance between the creative process and what audiences want. And it's a lot easier for independent creators to give audiences more of what they want. But there's also that uh, Ford quote of, like, if I asked the people what they want, they would have said faster horses. (laughs) And so, like, there's this balance between the creative process and, like, the stories that creators have inside themselves and want to get out versus design by committee. Mm, Yeah. Which, you know, can be good, but also can take things to weird or less compel- less emotionally compelling places for the sake of fitting everything in. Right. Um, last couple questions of my own. Um, biggest flim flam about fandom. Any myths that you would like to get on a soapbox and bust? Um, that it's only for teenage girls. <laughs> Conversely, <laughs> that teenage girl taste doesn't matter. Right. Like, how can this be such an important cultural phenomenon and discount one of the loudest contingencies of it? If I could soapbox forever, it would be like teen girl taste matters mm-hmm. to what actually becomes popular and commercially viable in this and other countries. So I think it's like derision of teen girl taste. I really hate it when talk show hosts drag out fan fiction and fan art as, like, a tool for embarrassment of the actors in an IP. Oh, that like, sucks. I hate that. Um, It wasn't written for you. And so, like, there's that. There's also the assumption, like, in my job, mm-hmm. and I get this a lot, is, like, oh, you study fandom, so you must study the fandom that I'm in. <laughs> and... That is absolutely not the case. Like, I did not grow up in, like, emo bandom. Like, I can't tell you about the culture of My Chemical Romance fans. I know they exist. That's the extent of my knowledge. And so it's really easy to have the fallacy of, well, fandom only exists in my experience of fandom. Mm -hmm. Which is not the case, because the experience of being a fan is just, like, just as diverse as the people who are fans of stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I, I imagine you must have heard a lot about really upset Game of Thrones fans who were just like, well, I'm done now. Done forever. <laughs> yeah. When fans willfully break uh-huh. and are like, nope, this is not part of my identity anymore. Mm-hmm. Not realizing that like hating on something is still a form of fandom <laughs> because you're still caring. Like, yeah. The opposite of love isn't hate. It's apathy. But mostly I hate the way I don't hate you. Not even close. Not even a little bit. Not even at all. Is that what you hate the most about your job? Um, Not Game of Thrones, but people having assumptions about it? Or what? what's the worst thing about being a fanthropologist? Probably that people have a very monolithic understanding of fandom and really want to define it however they went into it. Like, 
it's hard to broaden horizons is mm. the hardest part and worst part about my job because it's so tied to identity either on the production side or the consumption side like change is hard and slow and there's a lot of risk aversion is probably the hardest part about my job is convincing people to one take risks and two have empathy for the other parts of the process. Mm. So a lot of us think we know what fandom is and entails, but anthropologists know that identity and self-care and brand loyalty and exploring your own faults through fiction is very complicated, which is why anthropology is fascinating. What about the best? What's the coolest part? Is it all the free lanyards you get and oh. <laughs> going to conventions oh. when there's not a plague? I think it's just opening my eyes to what other people like and are interested in. I get to see so many facets of the cultural landscape mm -hmm. that I, because I work in the private sector, not in academia, my research is dictated by my clients, not my personal research interests. And so I get to explore mm -hmm. all sorts of other worlds that I would otherwise consider myself too old for or too young for or would not normally gravitate towards it or um, any other number of traits. So I get to see a much wider version of culture than most people's individual feeds would feed them. Mm. How do you feel when people tell you that they're a big fan of you? Uh doesn't happen a lot. I'm <laughs> I'm one of those professionals that like I know what it takes to be famous and build a brand on the internet and I have actively and deliberately chosen not to do that for myself. No, nah, man. And what um, do you tell people who are like, "Hey, my niece wants to be internet famous." And you're like, "Oh yeah, I hold the keys to that in a little box." What are you what do you tell people? I think well, okay, so if your niece wants to be internet famous, mm -hmm. I would say that they need to figure out what they like to make mm -hmm. and then make a lot of it. <laughs> like, <laughs> make a lot and understand what about it they like, what about it they don't like, get help where they can uh, in the stuff that they don't like doing, and spend a lot of time watching stuff that they like for the express purpose of understanding why they like it. <sighs> a lot of creative professionals spend a lot of their time consuming other people's content in order to look at it with a critical eye. Mm -hmm. So in the age of the internet, it's like, well, what is unique to you and what do you want to borrow from other stuff you like? Mm -hmm. And having that blend of unique to you and borrowed such that it is familiar is really, really important in that beginning stages, as is knowing what you want out of being a creator. Like, are you doing this because you want to be famous? But do you want to be famous because it's sometimes a proxy for having financial stability? Like, drill down into the why that. Mm -hmm. um, is it because you want to have fun and communicate the having fun part? Is it about having freedom of expression or is it about financial stability or is it about um personal growth needs like learning how to develop a skill why are you doing this what do you like about the content that you consume and make a lot of it and understand how to tweak the stuff that you're making if you want to grow 
Like, because if you want to be a professional, you have to scale to a size that can sustain being a professional. But if you just want to make stuff to make stuff, then make stuff and make a lot of it. <laughs> and practice and build those skills. Skill stack. Skill. Oh, that's, that's such good advice. That's going to change at least one listener's life, I'm sure. Which is so exciting. That's like literally like the end scene of Pulp Fiction with the briefcase. You're like, here's what's in it, guys. Oh, my God. Um, that's, that's what's in it. <laughs> I In no way did I intend to make this a two-hour interview. And I'm so thankful you stuck around. Um, this looks like it's going to be a two-parter. I'm sure this has just been so exciting. Ever since I was handed your business card. It has been on my desk for probably a year. So I'm so excited to finally talk to you. Likewise. <laughs> Can I give you my interview questions? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So, so Ali, what do you consider yourself to be a fan of? Oh, okay. Um, Things I'm a fan of. I think that I'm the biggest like stan of probably Fiona Apple. I think that if I were to ever meet her... I think, and I have met her very briefly, and I and I just, I don't even think I said a sentence. I think I just was like, blip, 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 blip. she was like in a lobby leaving an event as I was coming in. I think that that would be probably someone that I have so much awe and respect for and whose music and words and mission and ethos have meant probably the, the most to me over time, probably. Yeah. She's, she's someone who just, ne I'm never disappointed by her. What is your earliest memory of being a fan of anything? My early, okay. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. Do you want to know my first cosplay? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, I was the youngest of three girls. And I also, as the youngest, like just, I watched way too stuff that was inappropriate for my age because my sisters were older. So like tons of R movies when I was just barely in kindergarten. It was just like they'd be on cable. And so, but we, we would watch Escape from New York uh, too much. And when I was five or six, really was excited about dressing up like Snake Plissken. So I cut off the arms of a shirt into a, like a muscle tank. And I made a rubber eye patch out of an old bike tire. And then also took my mom's, um, she was not happy about it, but I took her eyeshadow and made a five o'clock shadow. Call me Snake. <laughs> and I was like, in bliss. And I think we may have had a toy gun, but I just remember marching around the backyard being like, I am Snake Plissken. I'm not dressed as Snake Plissken. Right now, I am Snake Plissken of Escape from New York, played by Kurt Russell in a post-apocalyptic world. And um, there's somewhere there exists a Polaroid of it. And it's one of those treasures that if my family, if we ever find it, oh my God, the bounty I would pay. Oh, yeah, that was me at my most badass. I peaked. I peaked. Thanks so much for taking like more than an hour. Oh, I love this. Are you kidding? I was like, as soon as you're like, I don't have anywhere to be. I was like, game on. <laughs> so what is the lesson here, y'all? Ask smart, passionate people about the smart, passionate people they study. Study people who study people who study characters and cut bangs if you want them. And just make a lot of stuff. Just make things. Get dirty. Be weirder than you think is okay to be. Meanwhile, follow at Meredith Jean on Twitter. She's also on Clubhouse, where she's been leading discussions on things like fandom and the attention economy. You can follow me, if you like, at Allie Ward with one L on Twitter and Instagram. We're also at Ologies on both. You can join the Facebook Ologies podcast group. Thank you, Aaron Talbert, for adminning that. You can find other Ologites in the wild with merch at ologiesmerch.com. Thank you, Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch of the comedy podcast. You are that for managing all that. 
that. Thank you, Noelle Dilworth, for keeping the whole ship running. Thanks, Emily White, and all the transcribers for making transcripts available on our website at alleywar.com slash ologiesextras. There's a link for those for free in the show notes, as well as bleeped episodes. Thank you, Caleb Patton, for bleeping them. And thank you to editors. Jarrett Sleeper, Mega Hunk, who hosts Quarantine Calisthenics every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific on Twitch, and to Jurassic Park fanatic and kitty lover Stephen Ray Morris of the podcast See Jurassic Right and the Percast, and a new Everything But the Movie, a Star Wars Books podcast. Nick Thorburn of the very good band Islands wrote and played the theme music. They have a new album due out in June. Exciting. And at the end of each episode, I tell a secret. And this week, it's not very juicy, but it's um, something I think about all day, every day. There was this long strip of plastic tangled in my neighbor's eucalyptus tree, and it's probably like 15 or 20 feet in the air. And I see it whipping in the wind every day. And I think, should I risk breaking several femurs to just go remove that because it bums me out and I keep staring at it and I keep thinking how am I going to get that thing down so stay tuned I gotta make it I gotta do something anyway okay I'm a fan of you bye-bye pachydermatology homeology cryptozoology lithology nanotechnology meteorology Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.